I read comics, show number 86. In case you didn't know it, Stan Lee is on Twitter. And I think just just goes to show <laughs> where Twitter has reached to that Stan Lee should be on Twitter. And of course, when I found out that Smilin Stan Lee, which is his Twitter handle, was on Twitter, I immediately started following him. And the coolest thing about it is that I think he and Twitter were pretty much made for each other. Because if you look back at what he used to write for Stan's soapbox and all his comments and even his editorial comments within the scripts of the comic books, those little boxes at the bottom where he would put some comment in, they were like tweets. So he's been doing this since 1964. And now he's just doing it to his, you know, gazillion followers. In fact, let me check to see how many followers he has today as I'm recording this. Okay, he's got almost 17,000 people following him on Twitter. And I think he's hilarious. And plus, he actually signs off some of his tweets with Excelsior, which is just too funny to me. I mean, it's the same way that um, Shatner signs off his tweets with My Best Bill, which is now like my joke for everything. But yeah, Stan Lee actually signs his tweets with Excelsior. What could be better than that? So I encourage you to go and follow Stanley on Twitter. And I've become so obsessed with his tweets that I've actually started recording them and posting them as audio booze because the guys on QPaw, on the Quiet Panelologists at Work podcast, had done at least one sketch. I think they've done several about Stanley in their impression of how he talks in this sort of old man voice with this very heavy New York accent and he's always spouting off ideas and saying Excelsior all the time and whenever I read his tweets now I have the coupon voice of Stan Lee in my mind so I decided to read his tweets myself um, for my own amusement basically but if other people are amused by it that's good and you know it's kind of gotten to the point where I don't really care if other people think it's funny I think it's funny so I do it to crack myself up so you can hear me read Stanley's wonderful tweets in my fake Stanley voice and enjoy them because it's really, really amusing. And occasionally he does tell stories. Whether they're true or not is a completely different matter, but he does tell stories. And you can find out what the hell he's doing because I was kind of wondering what he's up to besides his cameo appearances in Marvel movies and writing introductions to other people's books He's still writing comics and coming up with new ideas about whatever enters into his crazy old head. So, there you go. Oh, and he said that he was going to record another thing. Oh, for Kevin Smith. That was it. He tweeted this the other day. You know, last year he read The Raven for Halloween, and I had put that here on the I Read Comics show because I thought it was so good. And he says this year he's going to read, I think, um, The Night Before Christmas. So that should be fun. And if he does, I will certainly post the audio of that for y'all to listen to because it was great. Um, Didn't make it to Ape this year. Too much going on. My mom was in the hospital. She's fine. But it meant a whole month of kind of running around and doing things. And, of course, it was that weekend that Ape was happening. So what the hell? I couldn't go. Damn it. But I'm going to go to WonderCon next year for sure. 
And uh, what I did end up going to my, my night off was Wootstock in San Francisco, which was a whole lot of fun. It was hosted by Will Wheaton and Paul and Storm, who are very funny musicians. And Adam Savage was there and gave a great presentation about his hundred wishes. Casper Hauser was there. They did comedy. There were lots of other people there, short films. It was pretty much a geek fest, and I enjoyed it very much. So if they do Woodstock version 2.0, I encourage you to go see it. A couple other newsy things that I just wanted to get out of the way. I've been doing 52 songs on Mondays, mostly on Mondays, picking out things from my giant record collection that I think people might want to hear. And a couple weeks ago, I put up a full piece of one of the beautiful, beautiful Ginger Mayerson compositions that you often hear in this show. In fact, you'll hear one right after I get done with this segment because I love her music and she's finally got all of it on a CD that you can buy, which is beautifully packaged. It has one of her collages on the front and then inside on the disc and all of the art and packaging was done by Brad Rader, who we love. So Um, If you like her music, if you like the little parts of it that you've heard on this show, I encourage you to go and buy the CD because the money could not be going to a better cause. And I think you will like it. It's really good quality music and it makes you think. I know that sounds weird, but it really does make you think. So go listen to that. And, um, you know, let me know if you like the 52 songs. I've been picking out loads of different things, some new stuff, some old stuff. There's a lot of stuff I have that I need to convert to digital format because it's only on vinyl or um, it's only on cassette tape. So I have to do that. But I'm having a good time going through music. And the emails that I've gotten so far have said, yeah, it's good. Keep doing it. I was also on another podcast. The guys who do the Uncanny X cast decided to start, maybe, uh, a panel discussion, which they're calling Inside the Panel, I think. And they had me and Ron from iFanboy and Louis Kwok and, uh, oh gosh, I'm totally blanking on the whole cast there. Oh, um, Brian from the X cast. And it was really fun. Um, <laughs> so they told us that they were going to do it with points, right? And the people on the panel who were participating had absolutely no fucking idea how they were scoring these things. So as we're going along, we're taking breaks and we're all complaining and saying, how are you scoring this? And then I was shocked to find out that me and Ron actually tied at the end because (laughs) I was just kind of talking nonsense and giving opinions where I thought I actually had them, but mostly talking nonsense like I do. Um, so there you go, but they're supposed to do it again, and I said I would love to be on it again, because it was pretty much fun. Um, and so if you haven't listened to it, go in and give a listen. There was a whole bunch of different topics that we talked about, including old stuff and new stuff, and whether Peter David is a hypocrite, and bagging and boarding, and all sorts of things like that, but it was really fun. Um, I put the link for it at my blog, at the I Read Comics blog. Um, let's see. Oh, and one other thing, um, you know, I have through my dear friend, Ginger Magerson, I've been writing various things for the different things from the Wapshot Press, which I love the name of. And the newest thing that has just been published is a collection of smut and it's called Erotique and I have a story in it and it's a het story. And I think it's a cute story called, uh, Oh Margaret. And it's actually should be, Oh Margaret, the way Bugs Bunny used to say it. So uh, I wrote it quite a while ago, and it 
never really found a home. I submitted it to a couple other places for publishing, and then um, I, I stopped doing that because I got bored with it. But then when Ginger said she had this new thing, I said, oh, I've got a perfect story for you. So it's good. And the other stories are good as well. And it has a beautiful, beautiful cover by uh, Carl Christian, who is the Byron guy. So I would encourage you to buy that if you like that kind of thing. It's only four fifty until December first, and then it goes up to six fifty. <laughs> what a bargain for the kind of smutty writing that you'll get in there. So on to the reviews, and let's keep going with the smut as long as I'm talking about the smut. Um, wonderful, wonderful Dale Lazarov sent me a galley, uh, a PDF galley of his new book, Nightlife, which is another. Um, compilation of wordless short smutty gay stories and it's beautiful he sent it to me a while ago and I felt like a jerk for not getting around to it I mean of course I read it as soon as I got it and I said "Ooh, this is good but I just hadn't gotten around to talking about it on the show so it's available now it's out now through Amazon um, so Nightlife by Dale Lazaroff and the artist here is Bastian Johnson and it's beautiful color it has three separate stories in it, and like the other collection of his work, Manly, which was drawn by Amy Colburn, it's a really nice collection of fun, really hot, smutty, gay comics. And as with the other collection, with the Manly collection, there's no dialogue. It's all silent, so every story has to be told just through the scenes and what the characters are doing. And there are little stories that go along with each one of them. Of course, most of it is sex, and the sex is really hot, but there are nice little stories, especially in the last story. So, like the other stories in Manly, the really great things are that you see a variety of different guys, different ethnicities, different body types. Of course, they're all really hot, and of course, they have big cocks, which is great. But um, some of them are older, some of them are younger, um, some of them are white, a lot of them are not white. Um, they look like they're from different socioeconomic classes, which is always good. So it's really nice to see a mix of people like that. And there's lots of safe sex, which is good. So lots of condoms to be found. The very first story that's in here um, has some dildo play in it, which is kind of neat to see. And um, as I was reading this, I was thinking about something I said to Logan the other day, so I'll, I'll give Logan a quick plug for his blog, um, loganotron.com. He blogs a lot because he's younger than me and he has the energy for it. Um, but he usually does on Wednesdays what he calls hump day hotness, which are pictures that he finds are really hot guys, usually gay, but not always. And he likes to put up as many as he can find. So I love his hump day hotness posts because they're hot and I like looking at those guys. But um, we were both agreeing that two things that they need more of in pictures of hot guys and in porn in general, straight porn, gay porn, is um, more guys with hairy chests because we're really both tired of the shaved chest thing just over it now. And people smiling and having fun. Everybody in the hot pictures, they're always pouting or they look like they're angry about something or they look like they have a stick up their butt. And I don't mean that in a good way. But why do they look so pissed off all the time? Is that supposed to be hot? <laughs> Is that supposed to turn you on that somebody looks like they're in a bad mood? It doesn't work for me, that's for sure. And in... um Dale's nightlife stories, the guys look like they're really having fun. They're making out with each other and they're smiling and they're laughing and they're cuddling and they just really look like they're having a good time. 
you know, I'm as much a fan of angsty sex as anybody else, but it is really refreshing to see good-looking guys looking like they're having a good time having sex. So that is probably the best thing about this collection. Yay for having fun having sex. They look playful. They look like sex is a good thing and not angsty. Enough. Enough angst. Um, <laughs> so, yes, these these little stories are all really good. Like I said, lots of safe sex, lots of fun stuff that happens in them. Interesting background in, in a lot of them. Um, you see different people. The other thing, too, about these stories, um, and I find the same thing is true mostly of the Steve McIsaac stories, too, is that, uh, again, not angsty, the gay guys are happy being gay. They're not hiding it. In fact, guys in these stories make out on the street, they're making out on the subway, you know, it's just like, hey, we're gay, and that's it, and it doesn't matter, and it's not like a secret, and it's not like something to be ashamed of, and boy, that's nice to see also. So, um, to get to the last story, because I thought that one um, had a a really nice story arc to it, Um, and, and it made me laugh a little bit, because Uh, And this story is called, let me tell you, Closing Time. Okay, they do have titles. It, it It starts off in a nightclub that's a church. And it clearly is supposed to be the limelight in New York. Here it's called Salvation. But it made me laugh because, you know, when I lived on the East Coast, I went there. And we always called it the slime light. And uh, I don't know why people really like going there. It was really loud and cold and the acoustics weren't good. So anyway, it takes place at, at this um, club. And the two main characters are the bouncer, who's an older guy. And then uh, a younger, punky guy who's um, really big and built, and he has a mohawk. And you don't find out until about a third of the way into a story that he's actually wearing um, a leather jacket and then hot pants and um, fishnet tights <laughs> and army boots. And it looks, it's funny. It's a hot, but it's still, it was very incongruous to me. I was like, oh, he's wearing fishnet stockings. Um, so he obviously got a thing for dressing up. And he leaves this club with um, another guy, and then they get hassled by some assholes, and the bouncer comes to the rescue with a baseball bat. So that's good. And then the two of them end up together and end up going to um, Punk Guy's apartment, which is a shithole. And they do a little bit of dress up and then they have really, really hot sex. And the older dude um, is not a, a, a daddy in that way. He's not a total top. They both take turns in different positions and fucking each other in different ways. And at the end of it, there's lots and lots of cuddling. And then the very last panel on that one is the two of them in the kitchen in the morning. Um, and it's not clear whose kitchen it is. It's it's one of theirs. And they're just sitting there reading the paper, drinking coffee, Looks like maybe they're living together at that point, and it's really nice. All these three stories have happy endings, and oh, it's so nice to see happy endings. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm really smiling as I'm talking about this, and I love the fact that this kind of porn can make me smile and feel so happy about it and not be all angsty. So, as with all of Dale Lazarov's work, highly, highly recommend this. Um, and the art is beautiful, too. Um, I was not familiar with this particular artist, um, Bastian Johnson. Let me flip to the end and see what it says about him. And then I can tell you what the hell he's done. I'll make it even a little bit bigger. 
It's kind of nice looking at it on a PDF like this. He's a self-taught comic artist, illustrator, and graphic designer, and lifelong comics addict. Well, aren't we all? Um, <laughs> he lives and works in a very small town nestled in the endless moose-infested forests of rural Sweden on the border with Norway with his sweet, long-suffering veterinary boyfriend, one extremely spoiled German shepherd, and far, far too many horses. It's his first full-length book. His art also appears in Stripped, Uncensored. A sporadically updated illustrated blog can be found at boytoygraphics.com. So there you go. Um, so, yay, nightlife. Woo! Okay, I am going to take a break in a moment, but first I want to um, ask a question and tell you, well, I'll, I'll tell you about this book that I got. Um, I went to the library and I was looking at the new stuff and I see this book by Brian Cronin called Was Superman a Spy? And Other Comic Legends Revealed. So I look in the front and it says, he's the writer and producer of Comics Should Be Good. Oh, I know comics should be good. It's that blog where he talks about comic urban legends. So what he did was he took all of that stuff and he made a book out of it. And it's pretty good. Um, I had read a lot of this stuff before on his blog, but I think he found a nice way to kind of stitch it up into a book and not make it seem too choppy. It's basically divided into Marvel and DC. Um, and he goes through a lot of urban legends, but also kind of a history of the comics. A lot of focus on the, the big characters at each one. So there's chapter on Superman, chapter on Batman, and then chapter on Spider-Man, chapter on Fantastic Four. So it's really good. And, and I think it's a good book um, for people maybe who aren't that into comics to give them a lot of background, if you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, I kind of think that if you are a real comics nerd, fanatic, geek, you might know a lot of it, but there might be a couple of gems in there. So good book, and it's a nice paperbacky size. Uh, and it's got cute illustrations, too. But here's the thing. So I was reading through the Marvel chapters, and here's a section on Mark Grunewald. He was a beloved editor and writer at Marvel Comics for many years. Um, he wrote for Captain America, but the work that he was most proud of at Marvel was Squadron Supreme. Note, I never heard of Squadron Supreme. <laughs> Created by Roy Thomas as a joke between Thomas, then writer of the Avengers, and Denny O'Neill, then writer of DC's Justice League, the Squadron was made up of analogs to DC's Justice League. Hyperion was Superman, Nighthawk was Batman, Power Princess was Wonder Woman, etc. The Squadron Supreme lived on an alternate Earth. In 1985, Grunewald did a 12-issue series detailing what happened when the Squadron Supreme decided to use their powers to fix our Earth by taking it over themselves. It was a brilliant look at the realistic demonstration of what superheroes could do in the real world and whether it was something that would be at all beneficial for society. A benevolent tyranny is still tyranny. The series is well-remembered as one of the first serious comics, and Alan Moore's classic series Watchmen, which began the next year, is similar in scope. So, never heard of Squadron Supreme, and I went, oh, you know, I'd like to read that. And then I was going through a box of books, and fuck, here's the Squadron Supreme trade paperback, which I think David Arroyo sent to me. So, David, I'm really sorry that I never thanked you for Squadron Supreme before, but now I'm going to say thank you because I really wanted to read it. And it like appeared by magic in my hands. And it's got an Alex Ross cover, which is really good. So my question to you guys, I haven't read it yet, is, is it good? Is it what Brian Cronin thinks it is? Um, is it really like Watchmen before Watchmen or what? Um, 
I can't tell by looking at it, except that the art is really kind of pretty, uh, and the trade paperback format seems kind of neat. I'm a little disturbed because there's a pregnant woman on the front who has really, really, really big hair, and then there's another woman who I guess is Power Princess, who is um, weirdly disproportionate, like her top half is really big and her bottom half is really strong, and you know, Alex Ross is usually better than that. So I couldn't quite tell what's going on. But anyway, I'm, I'm excited to read Squadron Supreme. So if people have opinions about Squadron Supreme, I would really like to hear it before um, I get into it. And believe me, um, I will take your opinion seriously. And if I disagree with you, you know, then let's talk because I'd like to know. Okay, quick break. And then I want to talk about this stupid Jason book and tell you why I don't think it's any good. you a happy thing before we do the Jason book. Um, Chris Wisnia, my good friend Chris Wisnia, who is now with Slave Labor Graphics, yay, has an illustration in the new issue of Skeptic Magazine. Uh, he did the cover for Junior Skeptic, and it's awesome. It's very much in the Doris Danger vein, and there's a lake monster coming up out of the lake and terrorizing a guy. And it's beautiful, and I'm so happy that he did it. And um, in my vain and egotistical way, I'd like to think that my introduction of Chris to the Point of Inquiry folks and the skeptical community got him that job. <laughs> And probably that's not true, but I'm going to tell myself that it's true because, you know, I'd like to make myself feel good. Okay, so, you know, I reviewed a book by Jason once before, and, and fuck me if I can remember what it was, but I thought it had some good things in it. This is his new book, and I saw it advertised um, on the Fantagraphics site because it's published by Fantagraphics, and I thought, well, that could be interesting, and they had it at the library, so I got it. And... I guess my comment is, I don't get it. And I can't tell if I don't get it because it's not meant for me to get. And I understand that some things are not meant for me to get. Like, um, I don't know, the Jonas Brothers. I don't get the Jonas Brothers, but I don't think they're aimed at me, so that's okay. Like, there are some commercials on TV that I don't get. And they're not aimed at me, so that's okay. I don't get Jason, and I think it's because it it, it appeals to some other demographic than me. <laughs> and it took me about, I don't know, 20 minutes to read this whole book. It's a beautiful book. It's hardcover. It, um, it's beautifully colored. Each page has four panels in it, and um, the reproduction is really nice and crisp and clean, and it's printed on heavy stock and it's the kind of book where you pick it up and you want to like it because it's so nice it's just a beautiful object but I don't get it it's not funny and I, 
I went all the way through it before I kind of realized that it was supposed to be funny. Okay, there's one funny thing in it, but that's about it. So there's four story. Oh, sorry, five stories in here. The first one's called Emily Says Hello. Then there's the one that's called Low Moon. Then there's one that's just Ampersand. Another one that's Proto Film Noir, and the other is You Are Here. And Jason, if you don't know who he is, if you saw his art, you'd know it immediately. He uses um, anthropomorphic animals that look a lot like the barn animals that used to be in really, really old Disney and Warner Brothers cartoons. Um, They're sort of unidentifiable as exactly what kind of animal they're supposed to be. Like, are they cows or goats or something? And it's just the heads, like the bodies look like... Um, people bodies, and then they all have bare feet, even though they wear clothes. Um, so they have blank eyes. Also, they just have circles for eyes. There's no actual eyes for any of them, and they don't talk very much. And you know, he's Norwegian, and maybe that's another thing that I don't get. That there's some kind of humor there that's just so dry, or dark that it's beyond black. That it's into some color spectrum that I am not familiar with, or maybe it exists on a parallel world, I I just don't know. So let me just tell you about one of the stories. The first story is called Emily Says Hello, and it starts off with a guy knocks on the door, goes to this woman's apartment, Um, they're talking a little bit, and we find out through the dialogue that the guy um, went to the house of a man and killed him. And right before he killed him, he said, Emily said, says hello. And he took a picture of the dead guy and made a recording of the moment when he said to the guy, Emily says hello and kills him. So in exchange for this, and we figure it's the woman who asked him to do it, um, she lets him feel her up. And then he leaves and she takes the picture and puts it on the wall. And then the same thing happens, and the second time she gives him a pair of her underwear, and the third time she gives him a hand job, and then the fourth time she blows him, and so he's killing these people, and eventually, by the fifth time, uh, he says the cops are following him, but he, he killed the guy anyway, and um, he's, you know, cops are following him up to this woman's apartment, and they're knocking at the door, and finally he says, who is she? Who is Emily? And the woman looks at him, and then she jumps out the window, and she's closing her eyes, and she's kind of falling in blackness, and in the very last panel, she opens her eyes again. That's the end of the story. I don't get it. There's so many things that it could be, and, okay, I guess maybe I get the point that you're supposed to think of what happened to her or why she wanted these guys killed and was she Emily or uh, okay (laughs) a little existential so then we get to the second one which is called Low Moon and um, it's like a western except people have cell phones and there's a bar and um, they don't serve liquor there they only have uh, it's like a coffee bar bar, even though it looks like a real old western bar, and it revolves around, um, oh, it's just like every western story where there's a sheriff and the guy who had to leave town because something happened between him and the sheriff, and then he comes back, and they have a showdown, except the showdown in this case is not with guns, it's playing chess, and then at the end, uh, 
the sheriff beats him, and he ends up marrying the girl that he loves, and uh, the the guy that he beat, the, the outlaw, uh, has to... Does he leave town? I can't even fucking remember. I have to look. No, he doesn't leave town. Nobody knows what happens to him. Uh, but... Like, I can't even follow the thread of this story. That's the end. That That's what happens, okay? Nothing else actually happens in it, except there are some women who have no roles at all, except to be either the possessions of the men or the objects of their desire. And one of them, of course, is a prostitute and uh, has to leave town at the end, presumably for a better life somewhere else. <sighs> And then there's another one that's got, like, some parallel story of guys who can't make themselves happy. And then this other one, oh, God, this is the thing that annoyed me most of all. It's this weird story about a guy, and you think it takes place in, you know, prehistoric times because he's dressed like a caveman, but then he comes to a house and he has sex with this woman, and then he decides that he has to kill her husband. And then the whole plot of the story is... Every morning as the two of them are sitting there, the husband comes back and the guy has to kill him again. And he does this every day. And it goes on and on and on and on. And I can't tell you how many different times he kills the guy in all these different ways. But it's it's like, could you beat that joke into the ground any further? I mean, it, oh, it just goes on. And it doesn't get any funnier for me. The, the more it goes on, it's not like it builds to hilarity. And and the ways that he kills them don't get funnier or more imaginative or crazier or Bugs Bunny-ish or anything like that. I mean, you know, he drowns him in a bathtub. He pushes him off a cliff. And then the final time... When the husband doesn't show up, the woman clunks him over the head with a rolling pin. And then the final joke is that uh, he gets put in a cell by the police with... Uh, I can't really tell. It's it's the husband or guys who played the husband or ghosts of the husband. There's a bunch of them and he says, I knew something like this was going to happen. Okay, was that supposed to be funny? It wasn't funny. (sighs) So, here's a review from Publishers Weekly at Amazon. Low Moon is actually a collection of five marvelously deadpan short stories. The expressionless anthropomorphic animals who populate his comics milk understatement for all the laughs it's worth. They manage to look bored and detached even when they're brandishing swords or exploring alien planets. The core of Jason's breed of humor is his protracted silences, the uproariously uncomfortable moments when his characters are standing around waiting for disaster to strike. They're not uproarious. If you want to talk about uproariously uncomfortable moments, you know, go watch The Office, the British one. Those are uproariously uncomfortable. These aren't. These are just jokes with too much space in between them. If this stuff was performed live, people would be falling asleep or walking out. And yeah, the characters do look bored and detached. And you know what? That made me feel bored and detached. It's really, really hard for me to connect with characters in a story when none of the characters seems to care about what's happening. Nobody's shocked. Nobody's scared. Nobody's happy. Nobody's joyous. 
Nobody in these stories is anything. They have desires, and you can't tell why they act on them. Um, in one of the other stories, a character commits suicide, and nobody cares. <laughs> and I just find it really, really hard to care about characters who don't care about anything, and maybe that's my main complaint. They're not funny because nothing about it is funny. There's nothing funny about people who don't care. Funny is when people care really passionately about something and look very silly when they're doing it. You know, that that's comedy. So if somebody has another theory as to why Jason should be funny and why I'm not getting it, I would really like to know it because I kind of feel stupid when I don't get something. But, you know, maybe I should just, maybe I should just let it go. Just let it go and say, you know, this comic isn't for me. I don't need to get it. I didn't buy it, so I can just take it back to the library and let it go. Now, I'm going to do something in real time. I'm going to stop recording this podcast. I'm going to go watch a movie and then come back and talk about it. I still haven't watched Watchmen. I have the disc. I've had it since I got it from Amazon when I pre-ordered it. But I think I'm actually going to go downstairs and um, pop it in on my beautiful TV and watch Watchmen and let you know what I think. So have a little bit more wonderful Ginger Mayerson music and I'll be back in a minute. a long movie. It's now 11.30. Apologies if I'm a little incoherent, but that was like watching a Lord of the Rings movie. I was watching my DVD with the director's cut, which was three hours long, and it felt like three hours. Whoa. It actually felt like reading Watchmen from cover to cover, which takes you longer than three hours, I'm sure. But man, oh, (laughs) I'm so tired. (laughs) Um... I'm not going to review it scene by scene because so many people have done that already. I will just give the highlights and a few lowlights. It was really good. I thought they did an amazing job. Zack Snyder did an amazing job of taking the enormity, the ginormity of Watchmen, the the whole thing, and bringing it to the screen. And as with other adaptations, and referencing Lord of the Rings again, I can see why he changed certain things, and I think he was right to change certain things, especially the ending, because the squid thing would never have worked. Just, no. Uh, so I like the way he wrapped that up. Um, it seemed to make sense, and it was very gripping, and got them a chance to show off some more really cool special effects, which I'm sure they're going to steal for that stupid movie 2012 that's coming out um, in a couple of weeks. So I like that, and I liked some of the other changes that happened along the way, and I've been reading um, about the differences in the versions and what the director's cut has that the other ones didn't, although I can't kind of bring it to mind, but it felt like just about everything that was in the book was crammed in there, and I mean crammed in there. There was a lot of stuff put in there. So it, it was it was really good. Um, 
the one, you know, Rorschach, there he is on the screen this time. Uh, and that was an amazing performance by Jackie Earl Haley. But, um, you know, he was more emotional than I had always seen him in, in my mind in the book. And part of that is the way his word balloons are drawn in the book, that when he's wearing the mask, he's he, to me, he always seems to be speaking in a monotone. He never uses any exclamation points. I think I pointed this out once before, but his speech is always very even, and he often doesn't use um, pronouns when he talks. And they carried a lot of that through into the movie, but there was definitely more emotion coming through. And maybe they just tried it the other way with him being completely monotone and pretty much devoid of emotion and found that that didn't work and that the audience couldn't connect to him at all that way. I mean, he's a pretty hard character to connect to anyway, but that probably made him even even less somebody that you could identify with. And you have to identify with him to make any sense of the story because when by the time you get to the end, you have to be with Rorschach and saying, people need to know the truth. You can't be on the other side with Adrian and, and Dr. Manhattan saying, no, it's all right for people to live a lie. You have to believe Rorschach's point of view. And that makes his death all the more tragic. Um, so I I thought that that was good. And um, <laughs> some of the violence was, shall I say, cartoony, comic booky. Um, especially the scene in prison. Now, I know that I spent a lot of time complaining about the scene in prison where the fat guy, whatever his name is, Lawrence, I guess, um, is sacrificed so that they can break into Rorschach's cell to kill him. And the way they do it in the book is that the other um, inmate who's the in the thrall of uh, Big Picture just cuts his throat and then they cut into the cell. And of course, in the movie, here comes the spoiler, they cut his arms off to get him out of the way, which was so gross. And, you know, I'm just thinking that they saw that scene in the book and said, you know, this doesn't really make any fucking sense. And they decided to change it and they went for the grossest thing possible. So that was pretty horrible. And you know, the amount of violence in it was pretty high, I would say. Not that it was gratuitous. I don't think a lot of it was gratuitous. I think some of it was gratuitous. And it, for me, it, it a little bit dulled the edge of the real violence that's supposed to shock you. You know, when that guy gets his arms cut off in the prison, you have to laugh. You go, I'm, I mean, I literally was sitting on my couch going, oh, no, ew, but I was laughing at the same time because it was just funny. And that makes you react with a lot less horror to actual horrible, horrible violence that occurs throughout the movie. Also, the scene where Adrian is attacked and presumably tr- someone's trying to assassinate him. In the book, of course, his secretary is shot. And in the movie, um, she gets well, in the book, she's shot dead. And in the movie, she gets shot. Um, and it's really graphic. You know, the bullet goes through her leg and then a couple of her fingers get blown off. Oh, that was really painful to watch. And I felt like that was gratuitous. Um, and not only was it gratuitous, but she was very much just there to serve the purpose of being made an example of let's see what kind of cool effects we can do with violent gory stuff on the screen and in the book 
that character serves pretty much no purpose at all except to get shot instead of Adrian, and he willingly sacrifices her. But this was just, for me, a little over the top. Um, you know, watching, um, I guess it was Lee Iacocca who actually got drilled <laughs> made me laugh also. And, you know, just juxtaposing those two things, I guess... I don't know, that probably says something about me as a viewer that I would laugh that Lee Iacocca would get shot right between the eyes and then shot some more, but that I feel really horrible when a woman gets two fingers of her hand blown off in graphic detail, blood spurting and flying everywhere. That was pretty awful. Um, the other, I thought the other actors were really good. Uh, everybody in the cast, I thought, did a fine, fine job of making that transition. I will say that um, the costumes were terrific, but the wigs were awful. Um, You could really see, and I don't know if this is true in the movies, because I didn't see the movies, but on the DVD, certainly, you could really see that they were wearing wigs. They didn't look like real hair at all. They looked like really bad wigs. As bad as one of William Shatner's bad toupees was how the wigs looked. And uh, that was distracting to me. Stuff like that really takes me out of the movie and makes me go, wow, couldn't they have done a better job with Adrian's hair? That's the fakiest looking blonde wig on a guy I've ever seen in my life. So I think they should have paid more attention to that. Um, And the old age makeup on Janie Slater and on Sally Jupiter was also really bad. Um, They didn't look the age that they were supposed to look at all. At one point, Sally says, I'm 67. She doesn't look anywhere near 67. Um, They did some old age makeup stuff on her throat and around her mouth, but her brow, her eyes are completely smooth, like Botox even. And I don't think that was the effect that they were going for there. And the thing with Janie, when she comes into the movie uh, sorry, TV studio where Dr. Manhattan's being interviewed by presumably Ted Koppel. Um, I know she's wearing a wig, but even when she takes the wig off, she certainly doesn't look like a woman who's old enough to have been a physicist at the time when she was supposed to. Um, you know, she doesn't look like she's 60. She looks like a 35-year-old actress wearing a little bit of old-age makeup. So, again, that that just broke the realism of it. I mean, realism in a science fiction movie. Yeah, I, I need to believe that. Whereas the people who were genuinely old, like the actor who played Hollis, looked like an old dude. And Matt Frewer, who was fantastic. I love Matt Frewer. It just took me a minute to recognize him as Moloch. And I was like, oh, I love him. He's so good. I mean, he looked like an old dude. Um, and all the other people who were genuinely old looked like they were old. So, especially on the women, I, I think they they should have found a better way to do it or, or worked harder on the old age makeup because that definitely broke my uh, suspension of disbelief there. The piece tacked on at the end. Uh, so the thing happens in Antarctica and John leaves and then we have a little scene with Janie and her mom making up. Oh, that's really nice. I liked it better in the book. And then she and Dan kind of figuring out that they're going to go crime fighting again, I guess. Um, (laughs) It was hilarious to me that he says, Dan says, I think we'll be all right in the end. And and, uh, Lori says, (laughs) John would say, it never ends. And I thought, Yeah, he did say that, actually, in the book. And it would have been a lot more effective if John had said it instead of Laurie, because it doesn't really have the same kind of effect coming out of her mouth. 
I didn't like that. I thought that that was just too, like, we can't leave it in this really, really depressing way. <laughs> um, and I also thought that it was a lot less ambiguous in the the final scene um, than it was in the book. So in the book, when the Seymour at the New Frontiersman finds Rorschach's journal, it's really unclear whether he recognizes it for what it is and is actually going to do something about it or is just literally going to throw it into the trash. In the movie, that character Seymour seems a lot more with it. And I think you're supposed to understand that he is going to read it and believe it and publish it and everybody is going to know the truth. So um, I don't know. I, I guess for a movie, you need to take that ambiguity away for that particular thing. Um, but I don't know. I, I guess I liked in the book the fact that you really don't know what's going to happen. Um, I, I, I'm i kind of wishing I'd seen the movie version, and I guess I don't even know if it's on my set. Maybe it's on the other disc, the actual release version, or maybe I can rent it or something just to see how it's different from the director's version. And I haven't gone through any of the special features that are on there. Uh, I saw that there's going to be another edition of it that's coming out, I guess, for Christmas. And I don't know what the hell that's going to have in it, but, you know, I've got this, and I'm not enough of a freak to have to go and buy yet another version. I already did that with all the Lord of the Rings movies. I don't need to do it again. So, um, yeah, definitely two thumbs up for Watchmen. Oh, and you know, I thought it was interesting that in the movie, they actually refer to their group of crime fighters as Watchmen, which... I don't think ever actually happens in the book. The original group of crime fighters is called Minutemen, but they never have a name after that. Um, They try when they're getting together to call themselves things. I can't remember what they are, but they never actually say Watchmen. But they actually said Watchmen a couple times, which I thought was interesting. I guess they really needed to hammer that home to the movie audience that when the title of a movie is Watchmen, you actually need to have a group of people called the Watchmen, or else you might not understand that whole stuff about who watches the Watchers. So let's talk about um, the <laughs> let's talk about high heels. Let's talk about Lori's high heels. I was disappointed that her heels were as high as they were because they were very, very high. Even in the scenes where she's just walking around when she's having lunch or dinner with Dan, they show her walking across the street. She's wearing impossibly high heels. In fact, they're so high that the actress can barely walk in them. And this is not so in the book. She doesn't wear, like, cripplingly high heels all the time. And when she's being the Silk Spectre, too... She also has ridiculously high heels, like way, way higher than you can really walk in comfortably most of the time. But, you know, I guess they figured she had to look sexy, as if it it wasn't enough that she was wearing, you know, this skin-tight outfit with a lot of legs showing. They had to put the highest heels they could. Now, astute viewers of Star Trek, the old series, will know that when William Shatner had to run around and do fight scenes, especially in the Gorn episode, Arena. He didn't wear his regular boots all the time. It's very clear that he's wearing little flat wrestling boots with no heels on them because all of the boots that they wore on the show like had Cuban heels on them that were at least an inch, maybe even a little higher in Shatner's case. 
but they couldn't risk him twisting his ankle and getting hurt. So you'll see in that and in Shore Leave and a couple other episodes where he's outside running around, he's wearing flat-soled wrestler's boots. In the movie, in the fight scene, in the prison, she's not wearing high heels. She's wearing flat-soled, what I guess are wrestler's boots. So the costume was so impractical that even the stunt person who was fighting couldn't wear them to do the stunts. She had to wear flat-soled wrestler's boots. What is wrong with this picture? If a stunt person can't function in heels like that, why would an actual human who's supposedly a crime fighter be able to do in them? I'm really tired of the high heel thing, you know? Really and truly, if you listen to us talking on the Uncanny X cast, I there was a question about high heels, and I answered it very flippantly, but... It just pisses me off. And I don't care what anybody says about how some women are able to walk in them or run around in them. Maybe they are. And I'm sure it took them years to learn how to do that. And it's still uncomfortable and it's still impractical. And if you fall and twist your ankle while you're wearing a pair of high heels, it's going to hurt like hell. And you're probably going to break your ankle instead of maybe just twisting it if you were wearing sneakers or something more practical. So please don't tell me that it's possible because I don't care. No actual woman who was trying to fight crime would ever wear high heels like that. It just doesn't make any sense. Trust me on this. So anyway, I was extremely, um, it made me really, really happy. And I was watching. I was probably the only person who watched that whole fight sequence with my eyes trained on her feet to see what she was wearing. And I was gratified to see that she was not wearing high heels. So there. Fuck you, high heels. And fuck you, Zack Snyder. Well, I think that's going to bring us to the end of the show. It's really late, and I need to get to bed after three hours of Watchmen. I don't know what the hell my dreams are going to be like tonight, but I'm actually a little scared. Um, Maybe I should go have a drink or something before I fall asleep. So, um, until next time, go and subscribe to Smilin' Stanley on Twitter. Believe me, you won't regret it.